the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Euronext Dublin, the new home of the Irish Stock Exchange. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a weekly podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Laura Slattery and on this podcast, brought to you in the week that the UK actually leaves the European Union, I'll be talking to Irish Times journalist Mark Paul about what Brexit means for Irish tourism. But we're going to kick off with politics and the party manifestos. What do they say? How do they say it? And does it matter what they say and how they say it? I'm joined by Irish Times columnist Chris Johns, to whom the dreaded task of reading them has fallen. Hi, Chris. Good morning. Were they page turners? Um... They were not. Um, As I said in my piece earlier this week, it was uh, a call I was dreading from the business editor, Kieran, to to have a look at these things. But in the end, I was glad I did it um, because I learned a lot. Um, And the the two main parties uh, have a hodgepodge of recommendations and aspirations and policies that add up to not very much, in my opinion, Um, but you, you you learn things as you go along. And I think the overall impression that I got from the two main parties' manifestos is that they are trying to please everybody in the audience. It is an election after all. And these manifestos are very, very little different to previous manifestos. They will quickly um, be forgotten. Um, there are, there's lots in them that will never be implemented. We might remember the famous uh, Fine Gael um, uh, pledge in tw- in the last general election in their last manifesto to abolish the USC. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got one year left. It was a five-year commitment, but there's no suggestion that that's going to be implemented. And we could come up with a whole list of things from previous manifestos um, to, 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 to play that game of spotting what hasn't been implemented. But it, it is a fairly cynical exercise by most political parties in vote gathering or, or appealing to the electorate rather than serious attempts at trying to formulate a, a long-term strategy for the country. Okay, so we might talk about some of the differences in those promises, um, subtle though they are in some cases. But first of all, maybe we'll take a look at what the presentation of the manifestos was like. Was it Fianna Fáil was the longest, maybe over 152 pages, or that was the, the length of the PDF anyway, <laughs> whether it actually they filled every page with words or not. But the Labour Party, I think, was the, the most concise. Yeah, if, if, a, if I was to vote for a party on the basis of the, the easy read and frankly the most coherent read I go for the Labour manifesto it was the shortest um, it was organized sensibly um, by spending department and um, it didn't have any great overarching vision in the way that none of the manifestos did even Sinn Féin's um, with, with its radicalism uh, but it, 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 it was very uh, straightforward in terms of its aspirations it is focusing on housing and health um, and a couple of other subsidiary objectives. But it was essentially an acknowledgement there. Um, given where we are in the economic cycle, given where we are in terms of our membership of the European Union, there's only so much we can do. Um, there are all sorts of constraints on us. And within those constraints, this is what we think that we should prioritise, which was really a refreshing change from the grab bag of all the other stuff that we saw from the, the, the other parties. So it's relatively short. You understood exactly where they were coming from in terms of their priorities. You may not agree with their actual policies, but I do think that of the of the four manifestos, Labour was definitely the best. The worst in terms of presentation was Fianna Foyles. Um, frankly, it was more white space than words, which I suppose um, anybody trying to get through it quickly would, would, would appreciate. Um, it was full of, of typos, grammatical errors, um, the odd spelling mistake. Um, it looked as if um, some, it had been rushed and uh, nobody had paid too much attention to production values, which, given where manifestos usually end up, is perhaps understandable. 
but um, it may also say something about the mindset of the people that produce it. Well, I mean, yes, on the one hand, it's maybe wise, but on the other hand, we knew this election was coming. So surely there should have been a team there who could have been maybe a bit more professional about that kind of yeah, side we, of it. We, for all I know, we may be being very rude about a group of people that did work very hard yeah. and they may have paid good money to a PR consultancy or, or some kind of communications consultancy to produce this document. But what they've ended up with um, in, in terms of production values is definitely of the four main manifestos the most inferior. So the Fine Gael one, which which is about 109 pages long, that's kind of roughly uh, around the median. <laughs> it opens with a sort of a picture of a smiling uh, Leo and Simon. And it has a lot of tables, a lot of costings. We might talk about that side of it a little bit later. But as you hinted at the start, there's a lot of the actual bullet points are promises of things they've promised to do in the past. There's policy measures there that seem very, very familiar, things that they first promised years and years ago. I think inevitably the the, the Feingel um, manifesto is is a a kind of a steady-as-she-goes manifesto saying, you know, this is what we we have been in government for the last while and you know what you get with us. So what you see is what you get. And, And the manifesto doesn't, promise any radical departure from anything that they have been doing. Um, They do provide, as you suggest, some very useful summary tables of their measures, um, of which there are dozens throughout the, you know, big and small. One of my complaints is that it's very hard to know what actually is a priority for for, for these parties, because sometimes very small, tiny measures... um, although very important in their own right, like men's sheds, uh, feature in in at least one of the manifestos, knowing where it stacks up in terms of priority, because they can't do everything. Yeah, I mean, one of the things in the Fila Gale manifesto is actually talk about a crackdown on influencer marketing on social media, which, you know, while it may be an issue of certainly of concern to my beat in in media and marketing, you do wonder, you know, does this have a rightful place in, in a manifesto? And uh, for, in, in um, Fianna Fáil's manifesto, they promised um, completion of the fiscal union in Europe. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, got a lot to do with the aftermath of the great financial crisis and the European dimension. And there's a lot of people who think that all sorts of steps should still be, need to be taken to prevent the next crisis. Um, of course, uh, the people that drive this are all in Germany and the, the, the people who object to the idea of this fiscal union are all in Germany. So how can Foyle expect to be able to deliver something that is utterly outside of their control to deliver is interesting, but it features quite prominently in their manifesto. And so more generally, where are the priorities? What are they? It's very difficult to tell. Finnegal do provide us with some very useful summary tables at the back of their manifesto, unlike Finnefoil. Finnefoil don't summarise what it is that they're going to do in any meaningful or effective way. Finnegal do help us in that regard. And not surprisingly, Finnegal's priorities in terms of the amounts of money that they are throwing at the problem um, are health um, and housing. Okay, well, let's talk about housing because that's where there is a bit of a difference between Labour and the two bigger parties. Tell me about what they're saying. Okay, well, as, as Owen in the, in the Irish Times today uh, has said, that what the two main parties are claiming with very similar numbers for housing over the next four or five years, which is about 200,000 units, they're essentially trying to take the credit for what they hope the private sector is going to deliver. And the private sector almost certainly won't deliver that number of houses over the next while. So the policy proposals of both parties, and I'd agree with him here, 
don't look credible because there are severe and complicated problems in the provision and building of housing in this country that um, have proved to be intractable. And there's nothing in the manifestos that I have seen um, that are going to make them tractable. Labour have a slightly different approach in that they're saying explicitly they're going to build 80,000 social units on public land and that the money will be, will be found to build them. Um, the shortages that are present uh, uh, amongst the building trades are ignored by all of the parties because this, this is a sector, one of the intractable problems, one of the many problems facing this sector is, is that it's operating at full capacity. So just um, in, 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 it's irrespective of where the, where the land is going to come from, where the money is going to come from, um, where are the people, that the, uh, the skilled trades people who will build all these extra houses going to come from unless you import them? You could, you could presumably um, import more carpenters um, and other skilled professions, skilled labourers in, into the country, but I'm not sure that's what people intend either. And do you get the sense that the electorate, is, particularly if you're at the brunt of the housing crisis, are receptive to, I suppose, the broad sweep of the promise that's being made or are they alert to perhaps the credibility issue on the promises that are being made? I think that's a fantastic question because one of the things that, that you do come up with when you read all of the manifestos or, or, or skim them in some cases is that what's being presented to the Irish electorate is now quite a, a different set of choices. You know, you've got the two parties and it's been called Tweedledum and Tweedledee and I think that's probably fair and you've got Labour with, with a different proposition. And then you've got the quite extreme end of, of, of the manifestos with Sinn Féin. So you, there are some real choices to be made. And going back to your question, I think it's a choice about that people have to decide, actually, how gullible am I? Mm-hmm. Um, and how much am I going to fall for these various, which, which promises that aren't going to be kept, am I going to fall for? And um, am I going to go for the, for the seeming radicalism of Sinn Féin that are making very specific promises to very specific groups, um, uh, both on the plus side and the minus side, or am I going to go with the steady-as-she-goes promises, most of which won't be kept by, uh, by, the, by the main parties? But it is it, So in a sense, it's a test of um, how, how gullible does the voter consider him or herself to be. Or, I mean, some people might say it's, it's or how hopeful, how hopeful they maybe yeah. are. I, I mean, Sinn Féin is very clear that they have a, a line that seems very clear cut. This is a manifesto for change. So, as you can say, yeah. there is an, an issue with the cost of some of their of their promises. But uh, as you say, that applies um, across the board. My my response to your question was perhaps somewhat somewhat cynical. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm an old man who's seen this also, seen these sorts of things before, and and seen how they can end in tears. Um, I'm not. A, I'm, I'm a fan of change. I think certain changes are absolutely needed. We do need to do some things differently, absolutely. But the kind of radical change that Sinn Féin are proposing, um, I think, are many steps too far. Are promises again that won't be kept? And I think that they severely underestimate um, the overall economic impact of of the package of their policies in the very unlikely event that they were to be implemented. But to a certain extent, all of these manifestos, um, you know, assuming anyone really uh, reads them, they're kind of opening salvos really in in what we might end up with, which is a kind of a negotiation process uh, for a coalition or a confidence and supply arrangement. So what do you see sort of ending up in any programme for government? Is it sort of a very small percentage of what's in the manifestos? Absolutely. Uh, You're right. These are um, merely opening uh, statements of a policy negotiation that then 
will depend on how the obviously how the electorate votes, and then we get into that dynamic about who is going to go into coalition or confidence and supply with whom. At the moment, we have a standoff with everybody saying they're not going to do it, but we all, we all know again cynically that that's one promise that won't be met. There will be a, a coalition, there will be a confidence and supply arrangement, or there will be another general election. One presumes. Um, so therefore, it's the most likely thing is that somebody will break their promise about not going into coalition with somebody else. And that will determine about which of these policy proposals then get talked about. Um, it would be quite a different conversation between um, Fine Foyle and Sinn Féin um, as between Fine Foyle and Fine Gael, for example. That's, you know, it's, it's a completely different conversation. Where it ends up depends on who is sitting at the table. Who gets the most seats? Okay, well, it's still 10 days, I think, or even nine, is it nine days now to an election? I've lost track, but uh, we're getting even closer than that to um, Friday night, 11 p.m., which is after about, after about an hour of, of counting down on a clock projected onto number 10 Downing Street. Uh, the UK is finally going to count itself out of the EU. So we couldn't let you go, Chris, without asking you about that as well, because obviously uh, yeah. Brexit has been foremost on your mind for yes. uh, three and a half years or more. Um, so what yeah. do you expect to come <laughs> after it, it, Friday? It's a, it, it's a sad, for me personally, it's a sad day. Um, and I think that all of my writing over the last few years, no, no, anybody that's seen any of my columns about Brexit, won't be surprised to hear that. Nothing much changes at 11 o'clock. We do have the jingoistic uh, celebrations being being promised. Um, the UK is in, a, is, is in a tough place at the moment because um, any sense of it coming together post-Brexit uh, is, 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 is absent. Um, for example, 11 o'clock on Friday with this, these light shows, um, Boris tried but failed to get Big Bang to bong using his phrase. I think Nigel Farage is going to be wandering around with some Union Jacks. Uh, yes, and, and, prob and probably some handbells as well or yeah. something. Um, a, a bell in one hand and a fag in the other. Where he'll put his pint, I don't know. Um, <laughs> there could A few suggestions could be made. The, but the, 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 the problem is, that the, to, coin, to use a, a, a German cliche, is the schadenfreude mm. of the Leave campaign have, having won. They're now rubbing the other side's nose in it. There's been no efforts whatsoever at reconciliation, at moving the country forward, at trying to bring people together. If anything, the divide is getting worse. Um, so from a political and social point of view, cultural point of view, that worries me a lot about the future of the UK. Um, the economist in me still worries greatly about what is now going to happen over the next 11 months as they negotiate at best a bare bones trade deal. And it really will be at best a bare bones trade deal. Um, it is still perfectly possible that we end this year going over one of those cliff edges that have been speculated about for so long. I still, I think that's, at the moment, that's unlikely because I think Johnson is playing a particular game, which is that he's pinning a lot of hope, I think, on Friday night being quite a watershed and, and marking a shift in, uh, if anything, the attention of the British people and British media in particular on Brexit. Once he's able to say, I've done it, I think he'll be he will feel able to once again shift position in in all sorts of interesting and cynical ways to a keep Brexit out of the headlines, b always be able to say but I've done Brexit, and c do it in the least damaging economic way possible. Now that might be me optimistic, optimistic, <laughs> hope triumphing over experience, 
But he's either got to tack and to shift and recognise the fundamental trade-offs in the negotiations that he has so far failed to face up to, the implications of the Irish, um, the border in the Irish Sea, for example. Um, He's either got to renege on some of these commitments that he's made to the British people or he's got to um, go over some kind of a cliff edge in December of this year. And I think it's more likely to be the former than the latter. That would make good politics for him. But he does face some very tricky fundamental choices over the next few months with any one of them is going to have profound implications depending on the way he goes. So, I mean, I understand he is due to give a pretty uh, big speech, uh, which is they're hoping will give some clue to how he might pursue the trade negotiations. And that's expected in the next fortnight. But uh, (laughs) I suppose we're a little bit scarred from the big speeches that Theresa May gave that turned out to be uh, very underwhelming. (laughs) We can't listen to what they say. We have to watch what they do. And um, he's he's inevitably going to... uh, talk about it being a great day and um, global Britain is now open for business and we're going to be negotiating all these free trade deals with every country apart from the European Union. Um, All this kind of, you know, bluster, um, which is his style. But then we have to see actually what happens in the negotiations. And um, that's where I think the the U-turns, the reneging on promises made will happen. And I think the hope he has is that when he does do that reneging, when he does start breaking promises, as he always does Mm. throughout his whole life. This is the way he has has operated, is that uh, people are so bored to death with Brexit, so fed up with it, they'll almost not notice and not care because they they have actually left. And that's the main thing. Yeah, for sure. I can totally envisage eyes glazing over at every sort of twist and turn of trade talks. I'm wondering if if there is a spate of of major job losses over the next month or two, could that really uh, be the PR disaster for the the Leave project that he doesn't he doesn't want to see. I think there was a job cuts announcement last week from uh, was it was a Jaguar Land yeah. Rover, but it wasn't an entire shutdown of a plant or anything like that, but those kind of decisions, decisions don't really feel too far away sometimes. One of the fundamental there are many trade-offs that Johnson faces that has never these trade-offs have never been explained to the British people. Um, but one of them is in that industry that you just mentioned there, which is the car industry. If they go down the very hard Brexit route that so far he's promised to go down, the British car industry is going to cease to exist. It's not just going to shrink. It eventually will go to zero. That's not just me saying that. The doyen of Brexit economists, such as that group exists, trust me, it's a very small group, is a professor from Cardiff University who in front of a House of Commons select committee has cheerfully said, yes, if we get the Brexit that I want, Traditional manufacturing, including cars, will go to zero, just like the coal industry. He said it quite explicitly. They ran the coal industry down to nothing. Let's run the rest of manufacturing down to nothing. This is what these people want to see happen. And so that's the choice that Johnson faces. If they do that, that, of course, is hurting all their new voters that they got in these places in the Midlands and the north of England, these um, so-called voters who lent Johnson their their votes in order to get Brexit done. This is the trade-off. Do, does he hurt them now or does he break promises? And that's the trade-off that he faces. And just to bring it uh, back to the Irish election before uh, we let you go, are you surprised at the extent to which Brexit uh, doesn't really seem to be a huge topic in, in, in this election? Is there a sense that the Irish electorate are kind of also over it? I don't know about over it, but they're certainly fed up with it. Mm. Um, and I suspect that's um, a big disappointment for Leo Varadkar because he, 
I think, would have hoped to get a lot of credit for the fact that, you know, we haven't gone over a cliff edge um, with Brexit. Uh, his, the deal that Johnson eventually ended up getting with the European Union was, I think, Leo Varadkar um, had a huge hand in that. That walk in the woods that he and Johnson had last year was a very important factor behind this. And I think he'll be disappointed he's not getting some credit for that. But um, people here, I think, are both are, are as bored and bamboozled by the details of Brexit as, as anybody in the UK is. OK, so they probably won't be first to line for the uh, Conservative Party shop special offer of a Brexit got it done tea towel, which is on sale now. And that's not an advertisement or a recommendation. But on that note, I think we can say it's going to be another interesting year. But thanks very much for your time, Chris Johns. Now, as January comes to a close, Tourism Ireland's campaigns to market Ireland as a holiday destination are in full swing. But is Brexit still the biggest thorn in the industry side? With me here to discuss the outlook for 2020 is Irish Times Business Affairs correspondent Mark Paul, who's been tracking the industry for us. Hi, Mark. Hi, Laura. How are you? This is really a sterling story, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, you know, British tourists coming into Ireland are by far the most important uh, source market for Irish tourism. About almost about 40%, almost 40% of all tourists that come to Ireland um, are, come from Britain. Um, and obviously, how much it costs to come here is a huge factor. And Brexit always throws the sterling market into turmoil. When um, when things heat up with, with Brexit and everybody gets scared about what's going to happen, sterling weakens. And when sterling weakens, Ireland becomes more expensive. So what you said there at the outset, it is and remains the biggest thorn um, uh, in, in the Irish tourism market is Brexit. Even though there was a deal, um, um, it's all going to happen again in, in 10 or 11 months' time because we can see looking down the track that, um, um, that they're going to take it right to the nth degree for the trade deal and that will cause, ster- sterling will weaken. It's, it's obvious sterling is going to weaken at some stage later on in the year um, due to the Brexit talks um, and that will make Ireland more expensive and again, uh, uh, the Irish tourism market will be under pressure and, and British tourists are a particular type of tourist um, because if you just think about the practicalities of it, um, they drive on the same side of the road that we do. So, so British tourists drive cars around Ireland. Uh, American tourists don't because the steering wheel's on the wrong side of the car <laughs> um, and because there's a gear stick and you have to drive on the wrong side of the road. The same for Germans, the same for French. So British tourists are, are a particular, particularly attractive type of tourist for the Irish market because they go to places that Americans just won't go because they can drive there. Um, um, so if you take British tourists uh, uh, or, or their importance out of the equation, the Irish tourism... Uh, product, you could effectively turn the country into a donut, just scoop out the middle, because Americans, um, Germans, French, they tend not to go into places like Roscommon, they tend not to go into places like Tipperary. British tourists do, and um, um, the more trouble there is for British tourists coming into Ireland, um, um, you know, it's the, the impact of that is just magnified on the Irish tourism market. So before we look more at the year ahead, let's just look back up to last year, 2019. Mm. It was a bit of a mixed picture, wasn't it, really, for the Irish tourism industry? It, it, it was. Um, um, it Overall, the, for the Irish tourism industry, it was the first sort of, uh, you know, it was the year that the, the boom died effectively uh, or stalled or spluttered to a halt. Um, and it was the first decline in headline numbers in, a, in I think, about eight years. Um, that's in, that's in, in spending, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over, over, overall. Now, British tourists, the number of British tourists coming in, again, as we said, it's a sterling story. So it waxes and wanes with sterling and, and mm. how strong and how weak sterling is. But overall, the number of British tourists coming into Ireland last year was, was actually just flat or a tiny bit above flat yeah, but when they were here a little bit. yeah but when they were here they were spending less I mean certainly in the mm. first quarter and in the second quarter of the year British tourists that came to Ireland what's the numbers were in or around the same they were spending between three and four 
maybe f- up to 5% less uh, each time they get here. And that has an impact. In, uh, it also has an impact as well in, in, in the type of uh, tourism businesses that are affected because British tourists, um, they often have family here. Um, and so they'll go to little villages or places that other tourists won't go. They'll often, they're prepared to stay in, in sort of B&Bs and small hotels, whereas, you know, American tourists um, and prefer big chain hotels. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the spend was down from British tourists last year. So what you've seen is the tourism authorities last year um, and Tourism Ireland and also Fulcher Ireland, um, and they're trying to figure out, well, we're over-aligned on the British market here. So how can we how can we uh, spread this out? So they've been um, marketing Ireland in you know in Asia and more in America and more in Europe. But look, no matter how much they market abroad, the, the size of the pie is so big. British tourism is still the single biggest, most important factor for the Irish market, and, and it will remain so. You know. Yeah, I mean, I do certainly get the impression that they have been very much on this case ever since, if not even before the Brexit referendum results came in and the result we weren't expecting. But it it is quite alarming, you know, in some of the the survey work that they had commissioned from from YouGov, this is uh, Tourism Ireland, early this year suggested that uh, about half of British people aren't really aware of the common travel agreement. So they might actually be anticipating... Uh, hassle getting into Ireland that, yeah, yeah, that, that the, actually doesn't exist. That might do. I mean, the, the first panic, so to speak, that we had about no deal Brexit, that really did present serious problems for Ireland because there was talk about physical borders and stuff like that and, and, and getting in and out of the country. And actually, some of the internal research in tourism Ireland shows that British tourists, actually, they weren't feeling less likely to travel. Um, and it was just that they were going to spend less doing it. Um, but the upcoming panic, the panic that, w- that we know we're going to have at the end of the year, it's not going to be about borders and stuff like that. It's not going to be about whether or not they can get into the country. It's literally just going to be about whether they can afford to come here. And, and, and that's what it'll keep coming back to because, you know, the Irish tourism industry generally is, is, is almost at full capacity and competitiveness is a problem anyway. And all of that is magnified each time sterling dips. I mean, it's a, it's a totally rational thing if they go to uh, a, a foreign exchange bureau with, with, with 100 pounds sterling they're just getting fewer euro exactly. I mean, <laughs> in exchange I'm, I'm, I mean a British tourist um, and when they're going abroad they might say to themselves look I'm going to budget for you know 500 pounds that's all I'm going to spend and that 500 pounds would have bought uh, an awful lot more euro in 2016 um, than it would now so w- with all else being equal even with the economic conditions not dipping in the UK even with consumer confidence not dipping in the UK with everything else being equal they still have less to spend in Ireland and um, because sterling has weakened now at the moment there's talk about this week and, and, and this month and maybe over upcoming months there's talk that the Bank of England might cut interest rates in the UK in order to help the UK economy sort of get through the shock of Brexit and if they do that sterling's going to weaken again mm. um, so really Watching sterling sometimes isn't the most rewarding or entertaining thing to do, and um, watching the performance of it. But if you watch the performance of sterling, you know, you're looking at the future of the Irish tourism industry. So we'll wait and see how they do on their target for British uh, uh, visitors, which I think is 2% growth in visitors this year. Hmm. But from North America, I think they're targeting 4% uh, growth in visitors this year and spending as well. And that's partly because they are, as you mentioned earlier, they need to compensate for this Brexit factor. They do, they do need to compensate. But, you know, there's another big problem um, facing the Irish tourism industry this year. And it's linked into whether or not they can uh, compensate for Brexit by getting uh, tourists from elsewhere. And that's aviation capacity. That's the number of air lines and the number of routes into Ireland um, and they forecast this year that it's going to fall by about 4% and that's a huge, huge threat. And there was a bit of a wobble in, I know December is not the most important month but mm. there was a bit of a wobble from North America uh, visitors that month in, yeah, just gone. There was and, 
and, and if, if there's any more declines in air capacity into Ireland from North America, I mean, it, you know, it, it would basically, any targets they have for, for using American tourists to replace lost British tourists would be out the window. There's already been wobbles um, in the Chinese market. Now, the Chinese market is a tiny market for Ireland. It's, they see it as a big growth market here to, to attract in loads of high-spending Chinese tourists. But Hainan, uh, Hainan Airlines has already cut um, its capacity into Ireland. So a 4% cut in inbound aviation capacity, the, the sort of the, the capacity of uh, to bring tourists to our shores is, uh, is you know, it's falling and, and that's a huge threat, you know. So while we're on the subject of, of flights, hmm. um, at the periphery of, of all of this is the growing phenomenon of uh, flight shaming, which yep. of course has the capacity to affect Ireland more than most places because people have to fly to get here. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, I, I, it's sort of third on that list of big threats uh, to Irish tourism. You have Brexit and, and you have aviation capacity and then you have, yeah, flight shaming and the tourism authorities, the Irish tourism authorities are genuinely worried about this. I mean, Tourism Ireland um, and the chief executive there, Niall Gibbons, spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, about 90% of all tourists that arrive in Ireland come via air. We're an island. Think about it. I mean, we're surrounded on one side by the Atlantic, on the other side by the Irish Sea, the Celtic Sea below us and the North Sea a little bit up above us. Um, um, you, you've got to fly here nine times out of ten uh, you've got to fly here to get here and, and, and this phenomenon this international phenomenon of flight shaming driven by um, a concern for the environment threatens our tourism industry more than any other and where it really threatens it is from countries like Germany and France um, because they're huge markets for us and uh, uh, but you know if you're a German tourist and, and you're thinking well you know I'm feeling a little bit of flight shame this year I'm not going to jump on that Ryanair flight to Shannon or to or to Dublin uh, instead I'm just going to get in a train and go wherever and they can go anywhere mm. they want in Europe on the train um, you know I mean they look at Greta Thunberg or they look at um, other celebrities that you see on Twitter saying that they're not going to uh, that they're not going to take flights this year and that phenomenon, that cultural phenomenon, um, um, that has a disproportionate effect on Irish tourism. And so Tourism Ireland is conducting research, uh, we notice, in Europe, uh, in Germany and in France um, um, and in other countries, trying to detect sentiment around flight shaming. It's something they're very, very worried about. And also, uh, on top of that, then, you have a big European Union debate about flight taxes. Um, because, again, you know, planes belch out an awful lot of carbon. Um, there's a, Euro- a European-wide debate about um, should we be taxing the hell out of flights? I mean, it's already become uh, an issue in our current election campaign. And again, Irish tourism stands to be disproportionately affected by that. Um, so, it's uh, yeah, it's up there as one of the big threats uh, facing the industry alongside Brexit and alongside aviation capacity. So I've had my first email this week about St. Patrick's Day and it was from <laughs> Tourism Ireland, as you might expect, because they're on the case and is a huge uh, hook for them every year to market Ireland abroad. And just, I suppose, just my sort of last question to you, Mark, is, you know, are the, the friendliness of the Irish people, uh, you know, has, has often been used as, as part of our, our marketing. And I'm wondering, you know, there's this maybe a slight sense that um, Britain is sort of, you know, less welcoming than it has been maybe in the past. Uh, is that a factor for, say, an American holidaymaker or a German or a French holidaymaker? Or do you think the fact that it's so sterling makes it cheaper to holiday in Britain totally overrides any I, such kind of cultural think, look, notion? Look, maybe I'm just some sort of a, a neoliberal hack, but for me, money overrides it all. You know, <laughs> pe- 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 People talk about sentiment and they talk about friendliness, but ultimately the thing that really impacts on the data and the figures is the cost. And you can track it. You, you can track the currency movements against uh, uh, tourism movements and they always match each other but you know Irish people remain friendly through it all OK on that cynical note thank you very much Mark Paul 
And that's it for this week's Inside Business. My thanks again to Chris Johns and Mark Paul. This podcast was produced by Suzanne Brennan and our sound engineer was JJ Vernon. You can get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. We'll be back next Wednesday, but until then, thanks for listening.